Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. post-decision episode of SCOTUS Cast. I'm your host, Nick Garfinkel. On June 17th, the Supreme Court decided California v. Texas, a case which concerned whether Texas, along with a dozen states and two individuals, had standing to challenge the individual mandate of the Affordable Care Act. Writing for the majority in the 7-2 decision, Justice Breyer noted that, quote, plaintiffs do not have standing to challenge the minimum essential coverage provision because they have not shown a past or future injury fairly traceable to defendant's conduct, enforcing the specific statutory provision they attack as unconstitutional. Justice Thomas filed a concurring opinion. Justice Alito filed a dissenting opinion in which Justice Gorsuch joined. Two experts join us to discuss the ruling and offer their differing views on the constitutional issues involved, including standing and the wider question of severability. They are Professor Jonathan Adler, the Johann Verheer Memorial Professor of Law at Case Western Reserve University School of Law, and Mario Loyola, Senior Fellow at the Competitive Enterprise Institute. Great. Thank you. Uh, thank you to the Federalist Society. Um, thank you to all who are joining. And uh, Professor Adler, great to be with you, too. Um, this case, uh, California versus Texas, is uh, the third installment in uh, the saga of the Affordable Care Act. Um, the first two cases, of course, were NFIB versus Sebelius back in 2012, which was the major ruling on the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. And then there was an interesting case uh, in 2015, uh, uh, King versus Burwell, uh, which had to do with uh, what, what appears to have been a, a significant drafting mistake or you would say a, um, a mishap in the evolving iteration of the law as it was drafted uh, that led to uh, a sort of court correction. In, uh, and now we've got this case, which which resulted from a, a change in 2017 to the law itself in which Congress zeroed out the penalty associated with the mandate that individuals purchase health insurance, uh, which was sustained as a tax in the first decision, uh, NFIB versus Sebelius. So if you remember, the decision in NFIB versus Sebelius, the court um, certified three main questions for uh, for briefing by the parties. Uh, the first of them was the constitutionality of the mandate that individuals buy health insurance or pay a penalty. Uh, the second of them was the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act's mandate that states expand Medicaid to cover a significantly larger portion of the population than was uh, originally covered by the Medicaid program. And the third of them was the issue of severability. And uh, on the briefs on severability in that case, um, the question was whether the individual mandate was so inseparable from the rest of the law 
or certain provisions of the rest of the law that should the individual mandate be struck down as unconstitutional, those other provisions would also have to fall along with it, which to me is the most interesting aspect of this entire case and one of the most interesting and unexplored and least explored um, aspects of Supreme Court jurisprudence, uh, going back to Marbury versus Madison, which was a severability case, right? It struck down a very obscure section of the Judiciary Act of 1789. Uh, and ever since then, we've got this doctrine <clears throat> that uh, out of deference to Congress, the Supreme Court will strike down only so much of an unconstitutional statute as is necessary to remove the unconstitutional part and leave the rest of the law in place. Uh, I've got, I'll leave for later in the discussion, some questions that I have about that original decision, uh, because I've always thought the doctrine of partial invalidation is not a lesser included element of wholesale invalidation, uh, because it includes an element of legislation itself and leaves the country with a law that no Congress ever passed and that no president ever signed. Uh, but be that as it may, and we'll leave it to history to find out exactly what happened in those chambers as the justices were negotiating in the original NFIB decision, uh, we'll leave to history to find out what really happened there uh, in terms of the negotiation between uh, Justice Roberts, who appears initially to have been on the side of striking down the individual mandate as an invalid exercise of the commerce power. Uh, I think he may not have been able to reach agreement with the other conservative justices on the severability issue uh, and was unwilling to strike down the rest of the insurance market regulations. Uh, and as a result, uh, may have modified his uh, position a little bit to be able to justify the individual mandate as an exercise of the taxing power, which is how we got here today. I'll say one, one more thing about the severability issue that's really important to understand the context for this case, uh, which is the argument for those people who argued that if the individual mandate was unconstitutional, at least titles one and two of the Affordable Care Act should be struck down, which is the insurance market regulations. The essence of their argument was that as Congress was uh, designing the Affordable Care Act, it was confronted with the, with the, with the consensus, it had the consensus that uh, a law that guaranteed issue, issuance of health insurance to all comers and on top of that, uh, imposed a community rating provision that would have healthy people paying for the insurance of old young people paying for the insurance of older people uh, was more or less guaranteed to produce a, what's to produce what's called the death spiral in the insurance market, whereby uh, uh, healthy people. Uh, wait until they're sick to get insured. Uh, the pool of insured uh, goes down. The proportion of people who are sick goes up. The price of health insurance starts to approximate the cost of actually delivering care. And uh, that accelerates into uh, basically a collapse of the insurance markets, which is what we saw in the case of uh, the uh, uh, individual uh, markets set up during the 1990s outside of HIPAA. Uh, by several states in the wake of the of the health insurance reform attempts of the Clinton administration. Uh, and so uh, the idea is that you could prevent, the idea that Congress has was that you could prevent the collapse of the insurance markets result that would result from the uh, insurance market regulations, either by forcing people to, uh, either by forcing everyone to buy health insurance 
or by purchasing it for them. And in the end, Congress embraced both of those approaches. Uh, it passed, it, it included an ind- a mandate that everybody purchase health insurance or pay a penalty. And then it set up these exchanges uh, whereby subsidies would flow through to healthy people, at least on the lower income side, uh, to purchase insurance for them and thereby expand the pool of insured and for, forestall the collapse of the health insurance uh, of the health insurance markets. Now, uh, we had the case of uh, now the severability issue in the ACA was, of course, obviated by the fact that the majority in that case found the individual mandate to be sustainable as an exercise of the taxing power, which was a rabbit out of uh, out of out of uh, Justice Roberts had that very that very few people saw coming because um, typically uh the taxes are sustainable as a revenue raising measure, but if but a tax penalty, that's just a way to enforce an underlying commandment of some kind uh, on circum on non circumvention grounds is typically viewed as an exercise of that underlying power. We know that uh, that's one of the sur- surviving elements, at least until 2012, of the child labor tax cases and the related child labor cases. So um, in 2015, we had. Um, Another assault on the law having to do with the fact that the exchange subsidies kept referring to state exchanges. And it appears only later in the iteration of the laws as it got negotiated by Congress that federal exchanges were provided for for those states that established state exchanges. Uh, but, the, but the appropriations that were set up and authorized never referred to federal exchanges. They only referred to state exchanges. And so the idea was, the challenge there was, um, that the that money could not flow through to the federal exchanges. It could only flow through to state exchanges. The Supreme Court resolved that controversy, that challenge, by ruling that the federal government uh, qualifies as a state for purposes of uh, of the of the exchange related provisions of the Affordable Care Act. In 2017, as I said, Congress, uh, now a Republican controlled White House, Republican controlled Congress. Uh, zeroed out the mandate penalty, but didn't eliminate the mandate from the law. Just, and just to wrap up, um, so the idea here for this case was that uh, now that the individual mandate penalty has been zeroed out, the individual mandate can be declared unconstitutional and then pushing forward uh, with the original severability argument, uh, the plaintiffs uh, uh, tried to convince the court, wanted to convince the court that uh, since the individual mandate could no longer be sustained, uh, it had to be struck down and was inseparable from the rest of the law and the rest of the law should also be struck down. There was one major problem with that uh, analysis, however, which we'll get to in a, in a which we'll expound on in a moment, <coughs> uh, which was that the entire original severability argument was predicated on the interaction of the mandate penalty with the rest of the law. And so uh, there was a real problem in the plaintiff's case, uh, it seemed to many of us, namely that now the Congress itself, by zeroing out the penalty, had largely undercut that argument. But anyway, here I'll turn it over to Jonathan to go through the specifics of the decision in California versus Texas this week. Great. Uh, Thank you, Mario. And it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, It's always great uh, to be uh, with the Federalist Society, uh, even when we do it remotely. So uh, in terms of this case, the the district court had ruled in favor of the plaintiffs, both finding that they had standing, that the constitutional, the 
individual mandate without a penalty was unconstitutional uh, and that it was inseparable from other portions of the law. The Fifth Circuit affirmed the first parts of the of, of the district court's holding uh, on standing and on the constitutionally constitutionality of the mandate, uh, but remanded the case back to the district court to do a more a fine-grained analysis of the severability question, uh, but certainly uh, showing itself open to the idea that that many other aspects of the Affordable Care Act uh, would be inseverable from the mandate. California intervened on behalf of, essentially on behalf of the Affordable Care Act because the Trump administration uh, had effectively taken the side of the plaintiffs. And that's why this case was styled as California versus Texas. California filed the initial cert petition seeking review of the Fifth Circuit's opinion. Um, before the Supreme Court, just a tiny bit of disclosure, I was on an amicus brief uh, with uh, professors Ilya Soman, Abby Gluck, and Nicholas Bagley uh, on the severability question, arguing that the penalty list mandate was severable from the rest of the Affordable Care Act. I also blogged extensively on various aspects of the case uh, on the violent conspiracy. Uh, when the Supreme Court decided this case, um, the Supreme Court decided it seven to two on the grounds of standing. Uh, and I should say at the outset that I think this was a correct disposition of the case, but it certainly was not one that I anticipated, nor was it one that many commentators uh, anticipated. But an opinion by Justice Stephen Breyer, joined by all of the justices except for Justices Alito and Gorsuch, the court concluded that the plaintiffs did not have standing to challenge the penalty-less individual mandate because whatever injuries they may have suffered uh, in the individual case, individual's cases, uh, the injury of paying out of pocket for health insurance that would comply with the law, and in the state's case, uh, the other costs imposed on the states as employers and as states in complying with the Affordable Care Act, these injuries could not be traceable to the individual mandate. And the core rationale or the core way to understand uh, the court's holding on this point is that the individual mandate no longer had any consequence to it. There was no longer anything the government could or would do to anyone uh, who did not comply with it. Therefore, it could not be the cause of injuries that were sustained by the plaintiffs, even if those injuries were caused by the Affordable Care Act. Uh, as uh, Justice Breyer put it, uh, a core element of standing is that not only that you have a concrete and particularized injury, but that that injury be fairly traceable to the unlawful act complained of. And that traceability in the court's view uh, was the primary deficiency uh, in, the in the arguments uh, that were being made. And this opinion was joined by not merely the court's liberals, but also uh, Ju Chief Justice Roberts Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Barrett, and uh, Justice Thomas. Um, Justice Thomas wrote separately to note that while he agreed fully with the concerns that Justice Alito expressed in dissent and that many of, of us who have been critical of the Affordable Care Act had about the court's prior decisions in NFIB versus Sebelius and King versus Burwell, uh, he felt that th in this case, the court did reach uh, the proper conclusion uh, and that standing uh, had not been demonstrated. Uh, Justice Alito, joined by Justice Gorsuch, dissented on the standing point uh, and then went on to conclude that the individual mandate without a penalty uh, could no longer be justified as an exercise of the, of the Congress's taxing power and was therefore unconstitutional. 
and that if it were unconstitutional, it was inseverable from the rest of the Affordable Care Act, uh, largely because of uh, the findings uh, of the, the law that were inc included in the Affordable Care Act as enacted in 2010, and the fact that when Congress eliminated the penalty for the mandate, it did not eliminate the language imposing the mandate itself. And as already noted, this, this is a, a conclusion that, that I was on an amicus brief arguing the court should not reach. One last bit on the court's holding and on standing that's worth noting. Um, Justice Alito's argument that there should have been standing was based on a theory slightly different than that which had been argued by the individuals or by the states before the Supreme Court, and was rested, rested on a theory that Justice Breyer's opinion did not really address. And that is the idea that the alleged inseverability of the mandate from the rest of the statute should be a basis for standing because the injury that Texas, for example, was claiming was not an injury from the mandate, but an injury from the Affordable Care Act. And that if the Affordable Care Act as a whole, well, then an injury caused by the Affordable Care Act would certainly be uh, traceable to the Affordable Care Act and redressable by a judgment that invalidated the Affordable Care Act. Um, my own view uh, is that it would have been nice if the majority had addressed this point. I think it's a close call, as Justice Thomas noted in his separate concurrence, whether or not this particular argument had been waived by the parties, uh, it had been brought up at oral argument, it had been raised uh, by the Justice Department, and certainly it had been implicated in prior arguments. I went back and noticed that in writing about the standing issues in this case, in blog posts going back to 2018, this question of whether or not alleged inseverability could be a basis for standing uh, certainly had been implicated in the arguments that had been raised at various points in litigation. Uh, my own view is that these arguments would not counsel a different result, uh, that standing by insever inseverability as a general matter does not work because the action in question is the provision of the law in question that is being challenged. So for example, a restaurant that that doesn't like complying with the calorie disclosure requirements of the Affordable Care Act could not point to the mandate and say, oh, we don't have to comply with the calorie count requirements because of the individual mandate. It's unconstitutional. The whole law is inseverable. If that was a way that plaintiffs could get into court, then every large statute that Congress enacts would be vulnerable to challenge on this basis. Rather, what the court, I think, is fairly consistently done is look at whether the allegedly unconstitutional provision of the law plays a role in the injuries uh, that are uh, being uh, that, that are being alleged. So, for example, if the claim is that an agency is unconstitutionally constructed, like the CFPB, well, that certainly implicates anything that the CFPB is doing because the entity taking the acts is not lawfully constructed, is not lawfully exercising power. That doesn't require standing by inseverability. It's still looking at the same question of what is it that is causing the injury in question. Uh, but in a case like this, if the alleged constitutional infirmity of the statute is a provision of law that has no legal effect, that imposes no consequence on anyone who violates it, but the federal government cannot enforce against anybody, then traditional standing doctrine, the way it has been applied in the court would say uh, there is no standing. So for those reasons, I think the court uh, was correct uh, in its decision, even if Justice Breyer's opinion could have gone a little bit farther uh, in explaining the rationale behind that. Uh, so that's 
uh, what the court did, why I think it's correct. I'll now turn it back over to Mario, who I think wanted to talk a little bit more about severability. So I think, thank you, Jonathan. Uh, great, that was a great summary. Um, I think the difficulty of, of this standing on the basis of inseparability argument uh, is, as Justice Thomas points out, as, as Professor Adler pointed out, uh, that been sufficiently developed by the courts. Part of the reason that I believe that this theory of standing has not been sufficiently developed by the courts is precisely because the doctrine of severability has not been uh, has not been um, uh, sufficiently developed by the courts in the sense that you had from the late 19th century and early 20th century severability cases, a long period of time, many decades, where virtually no law of Congress was struck down as unconstitutional and severability really never came up. And so severability doesn't really come up again uh, from, uh, after the New Deal until the cases in the, I guess, the 80s, uh, Alaska Airlines being the modern sort of uh, um, uh, encapsulation of the doctrine of severability, which required that, uh, and go going back to the older cases, but I believe uh, not quite reading them closely enough, uh, that the um, that a portion, an, an unconstitutional portion of a law, could be struck down as long as the remainder was operative as a law. Uh, in the way that Congress intended, and Congress and the court could be confident that Congress would have enacted the rest of the law um, without the without that offending portion. Um, that that series of doctrines to me uh, is is problematic. If you think about uh, Marbury versus Madison, in that case, we were talking about a provision that really was unrelated to the rest of the law. Uh, and so you have sort of several questions here. The, fir the first of them for people to ponder is, is whether partial inseparability is really more deferential to Congress than wholesale uh, or partial, um, partial invalidation is really more deferential to Congress than wholesale invalidation. Um, I would say that, that there's an argument to be made that wholesale invalidation is more deferential to Congress because partial invalidation does something that wholesale invalidation doesn't do, which is, which is that it leaves the country saddled with a law that no Congress ever passed and no president ever signed. And we, there's a good indication of this from the modern doctrine's second prong, which is would Congress, which is that it requires the court to end, go into speculation about what Congress, whether Congress would have enacted the remainder without the uh, offending part. And there's, of course, absolutely no way for, for the court to know that. And so the um, so the so so the key thing to note is that uh, again partial invalidation is rewriting a law uh, that uh, to make it palatable for the for, from constitutional review from the constitution's point of view um, that clearly has a legislative aspect in addition to a judicial one and if viewed from the point of view of separation of powers. Uh, I think it's proper to view partial invalidation as a different kind of power, not just a lesser included element of wholesale invalidation. And so for me, I would say that uh, that, that is at least a serious question that's raised by, by the opinion in Marbury versus Madison, whether it's really so deferential to Congress to just strike down uh, one small part of the law as opposed to invalidating the whole thing. Now, let's assume that the as the concession to reality, it would have been incredible to, to strike down the entire Judiciary Act because one particular clause 
uh, of it, it happens to be offen- offensive. So let's say that Marbury versus Madison is correctly decided on for the reason that the offending aspect of the law could have easily passed as a standalone provision and really had absolutely nothing to do with the rest of the Judiciary Act of 1789, which established the federal court system as we know it today. Okay, still we have uh, in this, in in the current situation, uh, in the current case, we have a situation where the individual mandate penalty clearly was not severable from the insurance market regulations. The only thing that the individual mandate penalty was doing there was to prevent the insurance market regulations from having what otherwise would have been a disastrous effect understood by all sides in Congress because they had just seen it happen in the state in the state markets outside of HIPAA during the 1990s. So now the interesting thing, the difficult question arises is that when Congress revisits this in 2017 and zeroes out the penalty, it's almost as if, uh, and here's the real where I see the real problem with Alito's dissent is that Alito is saying, okay, now we have the individual mandate um, can't be sustained as an exercise of the taxing power anymore. It must it's it's an invalid exercise of the commerce power, and we're gonna and it's inseparable because uh, the law now cannot operate as Congress intended in 2012. Well, the difficulty with that is that Congress, by striking down, by zeroing out the individual mandate penalty in 27, in 2017, has essentially rewritten the law. So now you have a sort of sophistic uh, question, which is, who's in, whose congressional intent are we talking about? The Congress in 2012 or the Congress in, 20, Congress in 2010 or the Congress in 2017? And to me, it seems uh, very difficult to to uh, to dispute that by zeroing out the mandate penalty, Congress decided the issue and basically decided uh, that the individual mandate could be severed from the rest of the law because that's exactly the law that they left us with, is a law that had all of these insurance market regulations and did not rely on a substantial individual mandate penalty to prevent the death spiral that policy experts and congressional staff and congressmen were expecting would happen in the individual market in 2012. Uh, in 2010 when they originally passed the law. And I think what happened is that uh, what has happened as I'm speaking now as a sort of health policy from a health policy point of view uh, is that the exchange subsidies proved robust enough to prevent that death spiral from happening. So it turned out, in fact, that the individual mandate uh, as a matter of fact, was not necessary to prevent the uh, the death spiral, even though insurance rates insurance rates rose dramatically. So I think this this case to me is uh, as interesting as the first decision was uh, back in 2012. This case to me is is really kind of is really annoying at several levels. Not the decision itself, but the case itself, and almost seems more uh, more apt for a, a, a Socratic dialogue on the nature of law than than for a Supreme Court decision because. If we're talking about a challenge to an individual, as Professor Adler alluded, we're talking about an individual mandate that's a nothing. It's a, it's a commandment that's not tied to any kind of penalty. So is it even really a law, right? I mean, uh, 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 you know, we have ju- judicial philosophers that I studied in my jurisprudence class in Congress that would even uh, say that this is not really a law because you don't have any change in legal status resulting from a violation of the individual mandate. So what is this thing even doing there? Um, and so for the same reason, I think 
the standing all of all of because of that fact all of the rest of this is sort of a very sophisticated academic argument that's interesting for academic purposes uh but uh you know i think the two main takeaways here that really matter going forward is first of all that the individual that now we know if anybody could have standing to prove it that the individual mandate is unconstitutional for sure if anybody had could have standing to challenge this in court we know that the court has now uh we know that the individual mandate would now be resting only on an exercise of the commerce power and we know that that was rejected by a majority of the supreme court in 2012 uh and the other aspect of this case that to me is very interesting especially uh in an era where we can expect more of these really comprehensive laws that try to regulate whole swaths of the economy uh is the problem of severability uh and uh i hope that the uh supreme court will get back to the severability doctrines of the late 19th century and early 20th century which were really ones that required that the individual that the part to be struck out be really unrelated to the rest of the law uh in order for the rest of the law to survive Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 